We're picking up from, from where we left off last week. And back then, last week, uh, we looked at how Jesus displayed his heart. He laid out his heart and he displayed his heart of compassion to a Roman centurion and a widow who had just lost her son, her one and only son. Now, he helped them because he cared for them as much as he cares about each and every one of you. So this week, we're going to see Jesus minister to someone that he personally knew, someone that he had, that we know for sure had one interaction with. A man who was at his lowest point and at the brink of giving up hope. A man who just had a bunch of questions and he was confused because of the situation he was in. He needed to hear from the Lord. He needed to know if he was the one. And we'll be seeing how, when we'll be looking at that, and we're also going to be seeing how the Lord answered him in a very powerful and wonderful way. Now we're also going to be uh, seeing that afterwards he addresses the crowds to explain who he was, who this man was, and why he was there, or why he was here. And then he's going to issue a strong rebuke to the religious leaders. Now for those of you who may be feeling like you're, you're in your own prison cell, you feel alone, you feel abandoned, you feel like nobody cares, you feel like you're struggling with doubt because you're seeing or feeling that the Lord isn't there. He's not meeting and he's not meeting your expectations. Well, I believe that this morning he wants to minister to you too. He wants to meet you. He wants to speak to you personally too. So my hope is that by the time you leave here this morning, you'll be reminded about the truth who Jesus is and leave here spiritually replenished and fully convinced once again that he is the one. So as we normally do before we get into God's word, let's ask him to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, for what you've done, what you're doing this morning. I ask that you minister to us, Lord, this morning. All of us, um, we all come from uh, different backgrounds, different uh, situations, Lord, and, and we all need to hear from you, to answer our needs, Lord, and in the way that specifically just meets our needs, Lord, that we can hear you, in the way that we can hear you, Lord. So I, I, I pray that this morning, that through your word, through this message, that you will speak powerfully here this morning to every person that's here. Lord, fill this room with your spirit, Lord. Remove all roadblocks, remove all anything that's just blocking you from completely 
speaking to us, Lord, and, and soften our hearts, Lord. We want to hear from you. Thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 this morning. And we'll be picking up in verse 18. And the word of God says, Then John's disciples told him all about these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord, asking, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? When the men reached him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, afflictions, evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, Go and report to John what you have, been, what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear and the dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. We'll stop there for now. So the last time the author of of this gospel, Luke, mentioned John the Baptist was back in chapter 3. There, if you remember, in verses 19 and 20, we're told that he had been arrested for exposing the immoral marriage between Herod and his brother's wife. So here now, what we're picking up, John has been in prison for some time now, for several months possibly, and the news of the miracles of Jesus had filtered back to him. See, even in prison, John maintained loyal disciples who looked to him for spiritual leadership and kept them informed about what was going on in the outside world. He had his own news, personal news network. Um, and at that time, when there was no TV or nothing like that, those kind of things were important, just to know what was going on in the outside world. Now, it also must have been really hard, really difficult for someone like John the Baptist, someone like him, who was accustomed to living out in the wilderness, eating honey and locust and just wearing uh, just very minimal clothes and being free out in the, in the open, being out seeing, at night seeing the stars. Now, it must, like I said, it must have been just really hard for him to now be confined inside of a prison cell. So the emotional and the physical strain were no doubt great. And the long days of waiting didn't make it easier. So he sent two of his disciples to make a simple but straightforward question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect another? In other words, was Jesus, he was asking, was Jesus really the Messiah? 
or if the Christ was still to come. Now, there may be many who find it strange that John would even ask this question, that he would question Jesus' identity since he was there at his baptism and pointed out to everybody who he was. So maybe in his state of despair, John thought Jesus would come and quickly fulfill the prophecies about him in the Old Testament, the ones that said that he would come and destroy the powers of darkness, that he would come and, and establish an earthly kingdom to free the Jews from their Roman oppressors and to judge the unrighteous. So we shouldn't find it surprising then to find him scratching his head when that didn't happen, when he didn't see that happening and things pretty much remained the same. He was still in prison. Maybe again he was thinking that after Jesus had taken over that he would come and, and free him from the prison. But that wasn't happening. We must remember that the best of men and the best of women suffer brief lapses of faith. Moses was ready to quit on one occasion. And so were Elijah and Jeremiah. And even in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, Paul said that he knew the meaning of despair. Yet in each one of these cases, and like many others more, these men always maintain their belief in God. You see, there's a difference. There's a big difference between confusion or, or doubt and unbelief. Doubt is a matter of the mind. We cannot understand what God is doing or why he's doing it. Unbelief, however, is a, is a matter of the will. We refuse to believe God's word and obey what he tells us to do. Doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong, said Oswald Chambers. It may be a sign that he's thinking. In John's case, his inquiry was not born out of willful unbelief, but of doubt, nourished by physical and emotional pain that he was he had been experiencing and that he was going through right then and there. Now, for those of you here, or if you're watching and if you're listening, and you're currently going through a moment of doubt, let me tell you that it's okay. We understand, I think everybody here, everybody that's been a Christian for a long time, we understand because we've been there. We've had those moments ourselves at one time or another we've all had our moments of doubt we've all wondered is God really there is God really does God really love me does he care for me does he hear me is he watching me does he know what I'm struggling with does he know that I'm hurting hurting we all have thoughts. 
And that's what's, again, great that the, the Lord gave us a brain when he created us to be able to think for ourselves. We're not robots. He doesn't tell us what to, to think or what to feel. But see, again, we have to understand that these sometimes, these, and these feelings, these emotions can be brief or they can last long periods of time. I want to say that in my 10 years of, of backsliding and when I walked away from the Lord, it was a long period of doubt. And by the end of that, I, was, I had gotten to the point where I was like, yeah, he doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. But thank God he kind of slapped me into the place. No, I'm not kidding. He didn't slap me, but he just revealed his love to me. He showed me who he was. Well, again, it appears that there was no immediate answer. There was, we see here again that, that, that Jesus didn't answer his, their question or his question right away. Instead, he invited those two disciples, those two messengers, to watch as he healed many people of diseases, afflictions, and evil spirits, and showed them and, and how he granted sight to many blind people. Now certainly the evidence of what the Lord was doing ought to be more compelling than just giving them a lecture about himself. Sure enough, again, that showing them what the, the power of his glory, the power of, of who he was, who he truly was, would be more beneficial to them than sitting down and explaining all the way from the Old Testament to that point how everything just pointed to him and who he, who he was. Sometimes actions, the proof, are louder than words. But he also wanted them to understand that he, he didn't come, he hadn't come to establish a political kingdom but rather that, that they'd see for themselves that the kingdom of God was already there in power. So now that John's disciples had seen it for themselves, the Lord then proceeds to answer John's question. He pulls portions of scripture and reminds them that, that the miracles he did were the very same ones the prophets predicted the Messiah would do. He specifically notes three types of action. Healing, raising of the dead, and proclaiming the good news. And then after he's done saying that, he adds kind of like a PS at the bottom. He adds this. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Now, this statement could be taken a couple ways. It could be interpreted as a rebuke to John for being offended by the failure of Jesus to take control and become the person he and others were expecting. But it may also be interpreted as an exhortation not to give up on his faith, to not abandon 
the faith despite the circumstances that he's in, the difficult circumstances that he's in. See, he may, he being Jesus, may not have been what they expected and wanted. A general to lead armies against Rome, a king to rule a new Israel, an end-time prophet to bring final judgment on the world and inaugurate the kingdom of God. But still, even to this very day, he fulfills scripture and continues God's purpose since the beginning of creation to bring the good news to all people in need. Are you offended? Because Jesus isn't what you expected him to be. Maybe for some of you expected an instant healer of all your physical ailments and addictions. Or maybe an ATM machine that dispenses cash if you just deposit the right amount of faith. Or a magician that just makes all your problems disappear. Is that what you expected when you came to Christ? And now that he's not meeting your expectations, you're feeling offended like, Lord, I gave my life to you. I trusted you. And now you're not meeting my, you're, you're, it's, it's a disappointment. You're not doing what, you, what I thought you were going to do. Are you offended by him? Or are Jesus' actions and teachings enough to convince you that he is the Messiah of God? During those moments that you begin to wonder, is Jesus really the Messiah? Or I expect another. I want you to re-examine the evidence. Re-examine the evidence, my friends. Those who were once spiritually blind, lame, and deaf, now see, walk, and hear. Those who were once covered with the leprosy of sin have now been cleansed. And those you thought would never change, would never come to Christ, would never be born again. Well, they heard the gospel and now are born again believers. Do you know people like that? Remind yourself of those stories, of those people that you're like, wow, only God can do that. Only God can make that dumb person smart. Only God can make that person listen. Only God, can, only God can soften that person's heart. So if you ever find yourself in a physical, emotional, or mental prison cell, I urge you not to lose hope. Continue to believe don't abandon your faith. 
Let me once again remind you of the words our Lord and Savior said here. Blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. If you're not offended by Jesus, he calls you blessed. It's beautiful. Now what we're going to see next is Jesus using this occasion to speak about John the Baptist and his ministry. So let's uh, continue reading, starting in verse 24. After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Why did you go out into the wilderness? What did you go out to the wilderness and see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out and see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out and see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they acknowledged God's way of righteousness because they had been baptized with John's baptism. But since the Pharisees had, had, and experts of the law had not been baptized by, by him, they rejected the plan of God for themselves. Well, apparently the crowds were asking Jesus why John the Baptist messengers had come to see him, why they came to talk to him. So Jesus answers them all by telling them about John and then explains the significance of his ministry. He begins by asking them three versions of a rhetorical question. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? Did they see a reed swaying in the wind? By this he meant if they saw a weak, frail person who compromised his beliefs. They see a man dressed in soft clothes. In other words, was he a celebrity preacher wearing expensive clothes and living in luxury in a royal palace? Or did they see a prophet, an embodied conscience who declared the word of, of the living God no matter what the cost, no matter what the cost to him might be. Yes, indeed, Jesus affirms. And more than just a prophet. He then quotes Malachi 3.1 as scriptural proof that John and his ministry was the fulfillment of a prophecy written a long, long time. He, John the Baptist, was God's messenger who had the unique privilege 
the special privilege of introducing the Messiah, Jesus, to the people of Israel. John was steady. He wasn't easily shaken like a reed. John was sober in that he lived a disciplined life, not in love of, with the luxuries and comforts of the world. John was a servant, a prophet of God. John was sent as a special, as a special messenger of the Lord. And John was special in that he could be considered the greatest under the Old Testament covenant, the greatest of the prophets. So not only is he more than a prophet, Jesus goes on to say that he's actually the greatest person ever born in a normal human way. Again, we have to remember that Jesus wasn't conceived in a normal way. But John was. He was conceived just like you and I was. None of their religious heroes from the Old Testament could compare to him. For John prepared the last step before the Messiah came. He stands above them all because of, not because of who he was or what he did, he stands above them all simply because of the task that God gave him. And guess what? He completed it as God expected. Yet, despite being the greatest, our Lord also acknowledged that, that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And you may be reading that and thinking to yourself, whoa, that doesn't make sense. You just called him the, greater, the greatest, and now Jesus is saying that he's the least. I don't understand. What does that mean? Well, let me explain that to you right now. By this, he meant born-again believers like you and me. You see, beginning with the day of Pentecost, we have greater spiritual resources than John, due to the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As children of God, we've been given special resources that enable us to have a deeper connection with Him and enjoy the, the blessings that come from Him, to be able to, to worship Him, to be able to come to the throne room directly and fall on our knees and, and adore him, glorify him, praise him. We have that special privilege. Because again, we are cleansed. We've been, we're now his children. We've been adopted. We've been engrafted. We're his special people. So, you see, although he faithfully execu executed and completed his mission, John wasn't a participant in Jesus' kingdom ministry. Yes, he died as a believer. And again, let me remind you that he died before the full glory of Jesus was revealed. He wasn't alive when 
Jesus was crucified, when he rose from the dead and when he ascended up to heaven, he died before all that. But yes, he died as a believer. He died as a believer in Jesus Christ. But he, again, he wasn't around long enough to enjoy the benefits of the new covenant that you and I are now in. And because we are, and this is again amazing, our Lord sees us. Our Lord sees each and every one of you as greater than he. I don't know. Lord, to, to, to tell me, for Jesus to say something like that about me, man, it's, it's humbling, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. Now, some of you, again, today or in the past or, or maybe even soon will be having or maybe having a hard time believing this, that you are the greatest, that he sees you as greater than John. Or maybe you haven't really grasped this truth because you're still holding on to something or you're still holding on to someone from the past. Now, if this is you, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say. As Christians, our present call isn't to follow John. Our call is to follow Jesus, the one and only true Son of God. In other words, God didn't call you to keep holding on to the people and things that once gave you meaning and purpose. He called you to follow His Son. And this could be, again, a job, a career, um, an old boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband. It could be, you know, it could be anything. Money, that car, that, those things that, that, that gave you meaning and purpose. At one time, for me, I found my identity in my career, in my job. I felt like, and, and the moment it was taken from me, I didn't know who I was. If that one thing was taken from you, if it was removed from you, would you lose your identity? Would you lose yourself? Now, I believe that there may be, again, some of you, there are some of you out there who know exactly what I'm saying and who or what I'm referring to. The Lord is maybe speaking to you specifically, tugging at your heart, letting you know, pointing something out to you, pointing that thing in the past that you're still holding on to. Well, let me tell you this, brother and sister in Christ. If you want to follow John correctly, then you must leave him in prison. You must leave him there in his prison cell and follow Jesus. And if that's what you truly desire to do, 
then it's going to require you to make a radical choice of leaving all that was dear to you, all that was important to you in the past. You gotta leave it back there in the past. Leaving that person or thing in that prison cell, setting your eyes ahead and allowing yourself to be led by our Lord Jesus Christ. Even if that person or that thing was a good thing, even if that person or thing inspired you and helped you to become a better person, the fact of the matter is, the truth is, they're not Jesus. And as impactful as they were in your life, they'll never lead you to become the person God truly intended for you to become, for you to be. When you begin to follow, truly, completely follow Jesus, not looking around at that person or that thing or, or part-time following the past and part-time following Jesus, when you completely surrender yourself and just follow the Lord, follow Jesus, He's going to radically transform your life, change your life. Everything you thought that was important to you now seems like rubbish. And the only thing that's going to matter is what Jesus says, what he does, following him, obeying him. If you're having a hard time thinking to yourself, I can't obey everything the Lord tells me or everything the Lord says. That's a lot. That's impossible. Well, let me tell you, I, it is. It may, it, at first, it seems over, overwhelming. But when you leave those things behind and start just really following Jesus, it just taking small steps, taking baby steps, learning the basics, just following him alone. And, and, and the more you follow him, the more you hear his voice, the more you become dependent. No, the more you, you, you walk with him, the more dependent you would become on him. And then he will show you his glory. He will show you his power. He will meet your needs. Yet no one else and nothing else will be able to do that for you. They won't. Those things won't make you into the person God really wants you to be. So, again, thus, regardless of how hard it'll be to let go of the past, your life will be far better the moment you do all the way up or all the way to eternity. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul wrote this, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Jesus, in Christ Jesus. Now back in our passage, Luke says in verses 29 and 30 that those who had repented in preparation for the Messiah by receiving John's baptism found it easy to receive what Jesus said. 
they're like, yeah, yeah, that, you're right, that makes sense. That makes absolute, absolute sense. So you see, everything they did was, was in preparation for the Messiah. Things began to fall into place once Jesus started speaking truth to them. However, the Pharisees and the experts of the law demonstrated a couple things when they refused John's baptism. One, their unwillingness to humble themselves and repent of their sins. And two, their rejection of the plan of God regarding salvation. These religious leaders, those considered expert in God's law and God's word, those teachers of the nation missed out on God's promises. And I'm telling all of you today that he doesn't want you to miss out on those promises. He doesn't, he wants you to be part. He wants you to understand. He wants you, he wants to speak to you clearly. He wants you to come to him. They, those religious leaders missed out, missed the big picture because they were busy finding out how to live and how to ensure others knew the precise meaning of every jot and tittle of the law. They didn't see God's work in the world. They rejected God, the greatest of God's religious heroes. They fought and eventually crucified God's Messiah. Experts in fine points, they missed the major point and thus faced eternal punishment. Let me ask you, does this describe you? There may be some of you out there who have been so busy becoming experts in religion and teachers of God's word that you've completely missed the point. You've completely missed the whole point of, of this all which is having a personal saving relationship with God and discovering where he's at work in this world. If this is you, if this is describing you, then understand this. All those hours of studying the Bible, all those hours of reading theological books from the theological greats, of the past, reading all kinds of um, scholastic works. It's, all for, it's, it's basically all for nothing. All those pages that you've memorized, all those notes that you've taken, all that time serving all that is pointless. Yeah, it'll make you smarter. But all that information stored in your brain isn't going to save you when the Lord judges you. Here's the thing. You may know him here, but is he in here? Because if you know him here and he lives in here, then it'll be known by what comes out of here. 
Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, believe, again, that's an important word, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. It's not hard. Very simple. Believe and confess. But it's got to be true, and it's got to be genuine. And that's why I share or yeah, share the gospel after I'm done here because there are a lot of people out there who, who need to know that, who need to, who are looking, who want salvation, and we should be praying for them, that the, we should be praying that that message is going out to them regardless of where they are. They could be in, in, in prison, they could be in the other side of the world, they could be your next door neighbor. That they're hearing the gospel. And that they're coming to the Lord. And they're getting saved. Now, again, if you haven't done this and this is you, I want to, uh, afterwards, after we're done here, when we're done with this message, I'm, I'm going to lead you in a prayer to do that. But for now, we have one more passage I want to get to. And... Uh, and we're going to see the Lord will point out, he's going to be pointing out a problem with the religious leaders. So once again, let's go back to our Bibles and read these five, these five verses. Luke chapter 7, verse 31. To what should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet, wisdom is vindicated by all her children. Parables and comparisons provided a central content of Jesus' teaching style. He did this in order to bring every teaching down to a level that everyone from the most educated to the least educated could understand. And in the case here, he wanted to be sure that the religious leaders didn't miss the point, that they understood what he was talking about. Jesus considered those who were leading the people of his generation like children sitting in the marketplace playing a twisted, weird, horrible game, musical game. Now this game, if it's played correctly, 
One group of kids would play an instrument or sing a song for another group who were supposed to act out the appropriate response. However, these kids, these children, weren't playing the game as it was supposed to be played. When the first group played the flute for the wedding dance, the second group just wouldn't dance. And when the first group sang a lament, or in other words, a funeral song, the second group, they didn't cry. No matter which way the game turned, celebration or mourning, the children sat idly by, refusing to participate. Imagine being excited, being part of a game, whether it's a football game or basketball game, and both teams are just sitting there. They're not doing anything. They're not hustling. They're not, they're just quarterbacks throwing the ball out of bounds to the ground. Running back is walking, not running. Just don't care. They're just refusing to participate. So what Jesus was actually implying here was that the Jewish leaders were doing the very same thing with their behaviors and attitudes. So you see, he was essentially telling them that they were acting like a bunch of entitled, disobedient, and stubborn little brats. No matter what ministry God used among them, no matter how spectacular God revealed himself to them, they just took exception to it. But what must have been heartbreaking for the Lord to see was that these leaders were leading that generation to be just like them. He then backs up his claim by giving them two examples. The example of John the Baptist again, and then himself. In verse 33, he tells them that although they saw John the Baptist, they saw that he lived a strict Nazarite lifestyle. Still, that wasn't enough for them. If, they, if it were, they would have believed his message and they would have received his baptism. But instead, they criticized him and had the audacity to claim that he had a demon. Then in verse 34, Jesus uses one of the titles that he's known by, the Son of Man, as a second example. See, unlike John's rigid lifestyle, his strict lifestyle, Jesus came joining all the celebrations. Every time he was invited to a party, he went. But because he did, these religious leaders labeled him a glutton and a drunkard who closely associated with the worst kind of sinners, tax collectors and everybody else, all other sinners. Now, although yes, he was their friend in the sense that he loved them and genuinely wanted to help rescue them from their bondage of sin, the Lord 
wasn't their friend in the way, in the way these religious leaders meant it. That he was like them, that he was just like these sinners, or that he helped in the sin, or that he participated in their sinful behavior. No, that wasn't the kind of friend he was. But because they chose to believe, because these leaders chose to believe what wasn't true about him, they, they believed their assumptions, they went with their gut feeling, with, their, with fake reports and fake news, they also couldn't accept him or his message. So why? Why did the Pharisees reject both John and Jesus? They couldn't accept anything that was outside their box of religious rules and expectations. Their pride and stubbornness blinded them from seeing God's work in and through the both of them. They neither wanted the funeral nor the wedding because nothing and no one ever pleased them. Our Lord then ends by making this final point. Wisdom is vindicated by all her children. By this he meant that the teachings of John the Baptist and that of his own will be shown to be true by the lives that will be transformed because of their message. Yes, at one time they were criticized. They criticized John and Jesus. But look at what they both did. John led thousands of people into repentance, preparing the way for the Lord. And Jesus taught and worked and loved and died like no one ever has. And to this day, and I, I bet you to this very mo at this very moment, 2,000 years later, their wisdom continues to be vindicated every time a new or an unbeliever becomes a new born-again believer. Now, the wisdom of the Lord's way isn't seen intellectually nor argued logically but it's seen in the transformation of people practically. Look at the children of the Lord, born-again believers, and you see people, you see a bunch of people who were once strung out on drugs, hooked on pornography, held captive by materialism, living a life that was just leading to death. People with messed up marriages, hurting families, and broken lives who are now in the process of being, these people are now in the process of being perfected. Again, God's wisdom is vindicated by changed lives. So let the Pharisees, let those religious people argue all they want. The irrefutable fact is that lives are changed. 
also be aware that people who want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in the preacher, in the pastor, or maybe in another ministry leader to criticize. This is one way they justify themselves. But God's wisdom is not frustrated by the arguments of the wise and prudent. It's demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believe. This is how wisdom is vindicated. Ladies and gentlemen, yes, Jesus is the one. He is the one who saves you. He is the one who transforms you. He is the one that you can go to and, and find comfort, find healing, find peace. He is the one that will never disappoint you. He is the one that you can look straight, you can forget all that's behind and, and look straight ahead to and, and look forward to the, the, the new life, the beautiful life that he, that he wants to give you. He is the one that you will worship in heaven. He is the one that you will meet in heaven and, and just have a conversation with. He is the one that you're going to embrace and you're going to see the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet. And you're going to know that, yes, he is the one. Now, again, I mentioned earlier that they, there may be some of you who, who want this, who more than anything need a radical transformation in your life. You're at your dead end. You've hit rock bottom. You've lost all hope. Everything else, everyone else has disappointed you. Let me tell you, you can come to Jesus and he won't. You can open the doors of your heart and he will come in and heal you. He's going to start taking all the junk away, all the things that aren't good for you, all those things that are going to be a distraction, all those things that are going to get away, going to get in the way of that relationship. But it's going to be for your own good. And if that's you, let me tell you that you can just come to him simply. Come to the cross and ask him to forgive you your sins. If that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer to do that. So wherever you're at. Um, hopefully, again, it's in a safe place. You're not driving. But close your eyes and bow your head. And, and yes, even if you want, you can sit, you can stand, you can kneel. But with all your heart and with all sincerity, pray this. Lord, I confess my sins to you now. I confess that I'm a sinner and that there's nothing good in me. That I am 
separated from you because of my sin. But I believe now that you sent your son to die for me, that he's on the cross, that he died on the cross to forgive me of my sins. I ask you to wash away all my sins now, Lord, and fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit so that I may lead a new life, so that I may be born again. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've prayed that, get a hold of us and we'll lead you in your next steps of being a Christian. But let us know. Again, we want to help you. And for those of you, again, that may be going through a hard time right now, you're in your own prison cell, remind yourself of Jesus and what he did for you. Stop looking at those prison bars. Start look, stop looking at what you were expecting and just keep your eyes on the Lord. Remind yourself of the beautiful things that he's done, the wonderful blessings. At one time, you were a sinner destined to go to hell, but now you're his child. And he loves you and cares for you and he wants, as his child, he, he wants the best for you. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you again for this morning, for your word. Thank you for sending John the Baptist. We're so thankful that you see us as greater than he greater than John the Baptist. That you love us and care for us, Lord, so much. And that we are now part of this new co covenant. That we're able to now enjoy the fruits of the Holy Spirit. The joy of knowing you I pray for those who are struggling, those who are having a hard time, those who are confused or having doubts. I pray that you minister them to them and that you answer their prayers in a way that speaks to them personally, Lord. Give us the eyes to see people as you see them this week. Give us hearts of compassion. We love you and praise you and glorify you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.